Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Aria Labs here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Abington Mullen, and she is the CEO and founder of Abington Co. Abington, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. So I guess we'll get started, you know, just by explaining who you are and, and, and what you've done. Um, your brand, Abington Co., makes watches primarily for women, and you, you know, say that you are a, a pilot who is making watches and there's a lot of different sort of elements to the brand because I think that when you go to you go to events and you hear Abington, people have an opinion. So you're outspoken. And I'm just curious, what types of things are you outspoken about? Because I have, you know, I've heard in conversations bringing you up. Now, I don't follow social media that much because I'm too busy making content. But just I want to hear from you. What do you think your, um, you know, the, the messages that you're getting out there are to people? Well, um, that's very interesting that you, wouldn't you bring up my name to people, people say it's outspoken um, because I haven't heard those things. So I am going to have to ask you what that is all about. But I think one of the things that um, we've been doing for the last 16 years is bringing watches and products to women who are completely underserved. So when I started the brand, I really, I've always said I'm a pilot who makes watches uh, because I was learning how to fly back in 2006. Um, I still do fly today. I've got over 4,000 hours. I've flown all the way up to a Boeing 747 and I'm currently typed in an Airbus A320. So I very inactively flying around, traveling around, scuba diving, racing my Mini Cooper, all that kind of stuff. And when I got my pilot's license, I wanted an aviation watch. I wanted something with a GMT. I wanted it with a flight computer. Uh, all the different things that my flight instructors had on their watches, I wanted one made for me. But I'm five foot six, 110 dripping wet. So um, most of the watches that were available for pilots or that were in that style with those functions that I was looking for, they just didn't exist for somebody my size. So I got together with a bunch of uh, girlfriends who also flew, some of my female pilot friends, and we designed the first two models, which are called the Amelia and the Jackie. They're first, they're our number one selling models still today. And that's kind of how we became known as the first female pilot watch made by female pilots for female pilots. And so I, I have to, I have to ask going. because I know I know that there's this amazing heritage of pilot watches that have mm. been, you know, especially with Breitling and the slide rule and all this important, you know, complications added. But today, uh, 2006 isn't that long ago. I don't think that there's that much new revolutionary technology. But sure. what were the actual features on a watch? that you feel that yourself and other pilots would actually use during, I'll just call it modern aviation. I've always been curious about that because there's all these features, but the question is like, what, what's actually being used today? Right. Your flight deck has most of the, uh, you know, things that you would need when you're flying around. If you did have a, a complete failure, you, there's backups and all that kind of thing. So with the watches that uh, we're making, the things I was looking for, I wanted a solid GMT. Uh, believe it or not, and this is, this is a point of contention in the watch world, I wanted a quartz. I did not want an automatic because I definitely wanted the, the more reliable accuracy of a quartz. Um, because when I'm flying in the soup in the clouds, you have a second to uh, determine whether or not you're making a left or a right because of the highway in the sky. So I was looking for a quartz, a GMT, and I did want a flight computer. Uh, the reason being is I was still in training at the time. And when you do go for your exams, with the, whether it's your private, your instrument, your commercial, or your flight instructor rating, you are going with an examiner who is going to quiz you on those things. And they want to know that you know how to use the whiz wheel the E6B. Um, today, do I use that for fuel consumption and time speed distance? No. But what I do use it for is when I go abroad and I'm ferrying an airplane to Europe or Asia and I need to convert currency or I want to do a quick tip on a, a bill that I have at a restaurant, I can use the E6B for a lot more than just those pilot calculations that were used back in the early 20th century. 
It's funny because for the last, I don't know how long that I've been seeing slide rule watches come out, you know, Breitling and Citizen Group have probably been the two companies that have featured the most of them. Mm -hmm. And I used to laugh about, um, you know, like how little instruction there was and and they would make watches with it, but never explain how to use it. And then one time I was in uh, a Swiss air flight, you know, Breitling is like the official, I don't know, watchmaker of, and they had like this, this three panel fold out brochure you know, like sitting in the seat in front of you, which is an explanation of how to use a slide rule. <laughs> I thought it was really funny because it was like people who are captive, you know, in an airplane have nothing to do, have right. this Breitling sponsored brochure on how to use this, you know, archaic piece of calculation equipment. <laughs> you know, it was just hilarious to me. I was like, I don't know how many watches it would sell, but it was just the only time in my experience in the watch industry where there was any actual effort to explain how to use this device, Right. Right. Well, yeah. And I don't know how much a brochure is going to help um, because you really do have to use it, you know, move it around to see it actually working. I don't know if you've checked out the Abington Company YouTube channel, but we have tutorial videos on how to use the E6B and they're all broken up. I think there's like four or five of them. Uh, I get emails and DMs from in, from flight instructors and university professor, professors who are teaching aviation programs and they use these videos to help teach their kids the slide rule. And you say it's archaic. It is the original calculator, but I mean, it's still, you don't need an app. You don't need to charge it. It's still a really useful piece of equipment if you know how to use it. I mean, you have to be calculation minded. You have to be able to sort out numbers in your mind to remember, like, like I am someone who loves math principles, but can't seem unless I have like something to write it down on to sort in my mind all these abstract concepts. So it's like I've always been very envious of people who can sit there and have like a tally of figures in their mind and be able to remember which what they are <laughs> for these purposes. So for me, this is a sign of you can calculate like none other. Yeah, and and for me, I... I am not math oriented, uh, so I, I need every help I can get, you know. So um, the, the fact that I have used this now for the last de- decade, 15 years um, that I have, honestly, when I go abroad, the, the currency conversion is probably the most useful tool. And I've haggled in the streets of Hong Kong and I've, you know, negotiated uh, in business meetings in Europe and I just glance at my watch. It's the easiest thing in the world once you know the ratio to set it up with. I, so. I, see, I love this because it's you sort of make something new out of something old. That that you know the the rotating slide rule bezel, not new <laughs> at all. <laughs> nope. But for many people, it kind of is. And I I hope no one ever has this discussion with the tachymeter uh, scale because that is that is officially useless. <laughs> but you know the slide the slide rule bezel has value. And I'd love to hear more stories of people, like you said, with currency conversions, some type of more practical thing, because I don't mm-hmm. think even pilots are doing, you know, fuel burn consumptions for fun on a regular basis. I don't think you even want to be doing that. No, I mean, it, it kind of depends on the flying. If you're at the airline level, uh, I used to fly at the airlines and no, you're really not doing any of that. It's all being given to you. But when I ferry an airplane to, over the Pacific to South Korea or Australia, and I'm in an old airplane where I don't know if my instruments are so reliable, I'll back it up with an E6B. I'll still do that. Okay, okay. So, so it makes you feel more comfortable. That makes total sense. So let's go back to the time that you were, you know, getting your pilot's license and you wanted to, I guess, celebrate this achievement with a watch and you had, you had some consumer failure. Um, (laughs) How hard did you try looking? And then, you know, you're a curious person. You you obviously wanted to know why there weren't more watches like this, um, you know, in smaller sizes. There used to be. I'm just curious what you learned during that discovery time. Well, I mean, at the time I was 22, right? So I didn't have any concept of, uh, I wasn't looking at at starting a business. I was thinking I would go to uh, a company like Chase Durer, or um, I didn't think Citizen or Breitling would make like a custom one-off women's pilot watch for me. Um, And if they did, I felt it would have probably been cost prohibitive. But I was learning how to fly out of Santa Monica Airport and Chase Durer was just right there in Beverly Hills and you could go knock on their door and talk to them. Um, but they weren't really interested. And then when I started to learn that all of the other women that had been flying for decades prior to me, they were just giving up looking because they figured, well, you know what? Nobody's ever going to make anything. We're too small of the industry. And when you look at the numbers, it does not make sense to make a woman's pilot watch. Uh, it's only 6%. 6% in the United States of pilots are female. 
So, and of that 6%, almost, I want to say over 75% is at the student pilot level. So it's only 25% that actually have the private instrument commercial or ATP ratings. So it's a really small market. There isn't a reason for a company to go out and make something for them. So let me let me challenge that. I, obviously, the information is correct, but you, you said 6% of pilots are female. Don't deny that at all. But I'm actually wondering what percentage of people who wear pilots' watches are pilots. Good and I'm sure point. That it's, it's even less, right? It is and so totally. There's a romantic relationship between flying and men, and there's obviously a romantic relationship between flying and women. I, it's just, I think it's interesting that you have... You actually have a lot of women's diving watches, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Why the deficit of pilot ones? It, maybe we'll never get to an answer. I just think it's interesting because oftentimes, you know, especially with women's watches, like at last maybe decade, the industry has sort of woken up. They're like, oh my God, mm-hmm. we have like a, a very small number of watches for women by comparison. Right. Um, we should do something about it. And I love your opinion on this. And this is interesting to me. For Again, this is about the past decade, especially with the corporate interests. You'd hear a lot in their strategy meetings and say things like, okay, Ariel, the next big thing for us is women's watches. <laughs> and then you, 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 you go deeper and you ask the question, and the, and the impetus for this, I'll call it strategy, isn't that they have some special plan, isn't that they have some great design, isn't that they feel like they have some special insight in the consumer mind, it's that they feel that this is an area of potential growth. Mm-hmm. It's theoretical value. Right. And I think that's so important to mention because, yes, they have correctly identified there is an unserved market. That doesn't mean they know what to do, right? right? And what we've seen over the last decade is a bunch of attempts by different brands in different ways in order to, you know, appeal to that female market. It sounds like you've been into watches sort of in that last era. I'm just curious from your perspective as someone who eventually just started, you know, their own brand, what were some of your your sentiments by observing the various strategies, whether it's marketing or by product, in brands that seem to have a a newfound interest into appealing to women? Well, the biggest thing that my approach, because again, this was not something that I had ever anticipated blowing up in the way that it did. So I didn't attack the problem like most brands are addressing the the female consumer question that they all have. What I did was I talked to my girlfriends and they told me what they wanted. And then I thought about what I wanted. And then we all tested something out. Typically took me about a year and a half to come out with a style. So when I introduced the first dive style in 2014, um, I had my diver's uh, ratings. I was an open water diver at the time. And then I reached out to a bunch of customers, crew members is what we call them, and said, hey, if there's anybody out there who owns one of our pilot watches, but also is a diver, I want to talk to you. And I formed like this small focus group of about seven women. And the first thing they said is, please don't make it pink. And can you please not make it battery operated? Because we cannot afford to change our batteries every two to three years. And it seems like all the women's dive watches out there have batteries in them and they're pink. And that's just BS. So I said, okay, great. What colors do you want? We would love blue. We would love green. We would love orange. And it's like, okay, cool. So I need to make an automatic and I need to make this. And then they're like, and then can we have something else on it other than just the diver's bezel? Because that's not just what makes a diver's watch. So I'm like, okay, great. Well, tell me more. And they're like, well, I was diving in Fiji and I was out in the Red Sea and I took a trip to the Caribbean and I did this and that. I'm thinking, okay, you guys are traveling so much for the dive. And it makes sense to me because I'm now in Las Vegas and you don't really want to dive in Lake Mead because there's things that pop up out of the water that you don't like. So I would be traveling to go diving as well. So when we came out with the Marina Dive Watch, we put a world timer on it because why not? I mean, it makes perfect sense to have that diver's bezel, to have a world timer, to make it automatic and to not make it pink. So that's oh, it, it just took time and conversation. And I think that's what brands need to do if they want to listen and, and come out with something that's going to be successful for females. Brands have an interesting, we'll call it argument, if you will. And it's more of an observation. And that is that when it comes to the female buyer, at least traditionally, she's had a lot of options when it comes to items that can serve in sort of the way that a watch does. Now, we know they don't tell time, but they can, they're luxury items, they can be status items, they can be beautiful items, they can be decorative items, and they're more, you know, there's more variety for, for, for women than men. Mm-hmm. And the argument has been, why should we put so much effort into a product in a competitive space 
when women's attention are already pulled between whether they should put money into a new handbag or shoes or outfit or any number of other jewelry items to, to sort of improve upon herself and, and make her feel the way she wants to feel. And the argument has been, we're going to focus more on men's watches because there's more interest in, uh, on that. Um, I think there's a lot of holes in that argument, but they keep saying that all the time. What's your sort of initial reaction to when they say, well, for the same type of emotion, women have other options of what to get, and we, we feel that it's, it's, it's too difficult to get attention? What would you say, how would you respond to that? I mean, there's so many ways that you could uh, poke so many holes in that. Um, the first is men have just as many products that they are being marketed from belts to shoes to suits to ties to handkerchiefs to all the different things that uh, men are offered. Um, when it comes to watches, women may be given a variety of fashion styles, but when it comes to purpose-built complications or tactical watches, something that could be actually a useful piece of jewelry, uh, the pickings are really slim. I mean, they basically just decide, let's pink it and shrink it and then call it a woman's watch. And that just doesn't work for women. So uh, yes, do women have other items that they can um, choose to go purchase? Of course. I mean, the world is our oyster today. We've got anything can be delivered on our doorstep within a week. So uh, it's, uh, it's not something that should determine that you are to not come out with a watch for women because of that. That doesn't make any sense to me. But if that's what they want to believe and that's what they're going to keep self-perpetuating is that idea, then I'm perfectly fine with it because I'm doing very, very well with my company and women are liking what I'm putting out. I think what you're identifying is that you found a niche that, that needed to be filled a little bit. And despite their sort of incumbent conservatism, they're incorrect because you're proving that there is a market for it. Completely. Yeah. We've almost doubled every month over the last, for the last year. So it's, it's working. Women are buying so, watches. There's an interesting element of psychology that is not absent from the male wearing experience, but I think a little bit more, um, demonstrated in, in, in the female wristwatch experience where there's there's sort of two choices happening. And they can happen at the same time in the same collection, but not always in the same watch. And the choice is this. As a woman, I am A, buying a watch which is specifically intended for women, or B, I'm deliberately buying a men's watch and wearing it as a woman. And these are this is a choice that I think is not really common in the men's space because men just choose a men's watch and there are some men that wear women's watches, but I think it's relatively rare and it's not something, at least in the Western world, to sort of build in. So psychologically speaking, what's going on when a female consumer wants to buy or wear something specifically intended for women versus I'm a woman wearing a watch, which I know is intended for men? So when you think about who my customer is, um, a typical woman who wears an Abingdon watch, she's possibly in the military. She's possibly a diver, a pilot. She likes to race cars. She likes to travel, whether it's for business or for pleasure. Uh, she's a go-getter. She's a doer. Um, those women have already been buying men's products for years because that's the only thing that's ever available. Um, Gore-Tex, for example, uh, the weatherproof proofing um, clothing that you can wear for like camping and outdoors. Right, right. Um, that often does not come in really small sizes. So we are used to already buying men's products. So if what we have to choose is a men's watch uh, or one that is marketed to men, um, because really no watch, I mean, I know we've made, been making the argument over the last couple of years that watches are inherently genderless, right? It's a man's watch if it's on a men's wrist, if it's, it's a woman's watch if it's on a woman's wrist. And that is true. And so, but everything that's marketed to men, it doesn't necessarily mean that women don't want that. I mean, my number one selling watch still to this date is uh, a black GMT. It's a Swiss Ronda movement with a flight computer on. It's got a 24 hour clock and it's a 40 millimeter. Um, it's the most popular because also men buy it. And though I am marketing to women, I have a lot of male customers who wear an Abingdon watch. So it's, it's not really an, an argument that women are going out just having that decision between a man and a woman's watch. I just think it's very interesting to have the discussion uh, because we, this space of new brands popping up, 
microbrands, independents, and things like that, of which you are a, a member, is so focused on experimentation. And yet when it comes to sort of like uh, the, the gender topic, there's relatively little. It's mostly, you know, watches for men. And I think that makes sense, but I think it's important to talk about it because it does go to how the watches are communicated. It does go to the marketing. And I think that one, one of the things I found in the watch space, which is fascinating to me but true, is that brands that try to be for everyone don't work. But mm -hmm. brands that are saying we are for this class, even if it's to the exclusion of other classes, but we are for this class, tend to do better, even if some people end up, you know, disliking the brand as a result because it's not for them. And this sort of hyper-focus on specific areas of, of consumers seems to be the correct strategy. But by definition, there will be people out there that don't like it because you're not, you're not focused on them. And I think that the rule is probably the same uh, with a brand like yours, where it is more important to say, I am specifically thinking about this segment of the population versus some other brands. They're like, do you like good taste? Buy our watch. And you know, it's right. just, just that open-ended. Yeah. And I, I, I think that it's, from your perspective, again, as someone who, of course, wants to please as many people as possible, of course, it can be emotionally strange um, when there's someone who doesn't like what you're doing, but then again, in the in the back of your mind, you're like, well, we don't even have you as our intended demographic anyways. Like, mm -hmm. you just sort of uh, take that and start. I'm just curious, you know, psychologically speaking, again, as 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 an entrepreneur, you want the largest group of potential fans possible. So how do you how do you sort through all those emotions? Well, you do have to be different. You do have to stay within your niche. Um, you you all the day that you can accept the earlier that you can accept that you are not going to please everybody is the day that you move forward. So I already know because um, I've been told for the last sixteen years how you know when I had a patent pending on one of my um, inner chapter rings that it was cute, and I've had uh, the comments when they would see the Abington Co truck when we would drive across country to the air shows and dive shows that we'd go to, people at gas stations saying, "Oh, what you don't make anything for men? Well, that's you know that's sexist." Like I I hear that all the time. And it's like, okay, cool. You know, I'm, that's fine. I'm, we're still doing what we're doing. And you cannot please everybody. I don't even think the big brands aim to please everybody. So it's, uh, it's a much, I sleep better at night when I know that I'm not going to be pleasing everybody and just do what I'm really good at, which is make a really good purpose-built watch for women. I found an interesting piece of psychology that applies to most of the times that people complain about stuff. And I'd like to know if you feel that this sort of coincides with your experience, but this is generally how it goes in the watch space. Someone verbalizes a complaint, which sounds really like a deep criticism, but if you think about it, they're basically saying, I more or less like what you do, but why don't you have me as a customer in mind? It's like, they're happy you got their attention, but once you have their attention, they're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not accustomed to someone grabbing my attention and then this not being a product for me. And I feel that that's really what's going on. It's like they like a lot of what you're doing. Like They're like, I go to this gas station a lot. I want watch brands to market to me here. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's just sort of an interesting thing where, in a sense, it's almost a compliment because the people that you truly turn off wouldn't even take the time to give you any feedback. Yeah, I uh, I actually really like that psychology. Um, I I know that when we go to like the Oshkosh Air Show, which is a, a major aviation air show, uh, yeah, happens every cool. July. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, State Fair with airplanes. There's a lot of people that will go to like the Hamilton booth and uh, and and they'll look for like a woman's watch or something. Now the, the Hamilton guys have come over to our booth uh, just to check out our stuff, and I've been over the, over there, and we have a very friendly relationship. And they kind of had uh, given me it was two women who were working um, with Hamilton on this one particular year, and they were kind of saying like, "Oh, this is this is really interesting," but you know we're Hamilton, and it's like, "Oh." Yeah, I love your stuff. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Well, what ended up happening for like the next four years is every time somebody would go over to Hamilton's booth looking for a woman's pilot watch and they didn't have it, they would say, "Oh, go check out Abingdon and booth in the hangar A." And so it was. It it's That's nice of them. It was really nice <laughs> of them. I know, right? And um, and so you you 
do have, I love those naysayers or those people that have to get that opinion out because really what they do, what they're doing is they're looking for you to, uh, they're cracking that door that you can step into and just engage with them and, and they want to hear, they want to be heard. Um, but you can typically get them to become a fan of your brand, even though we're not marketing to them. And I've, I've done that a lot with people and it's a fun conversation. It's a, it's a little bit of a dance, a little bit of a battle, a little bit of, you know, both. And it can be, it can be a lot of fun. Who have your customers primarily been? It's, it's in America, right? Or are you actually becoming mm-hmm. more international now? We're very international, um, just because of who our clientele is. They mostly travel international. So, uh, but I would say 85% is in the United States and Canada. Now, every, every market has, of course, different tastes and things like that. And you began the brand, of course, with the idea that we want to make, you know, functional watches in sizes that are smaller with, of course, you know, the, the designs and things that this market wants. What, what tends to happen in brands is, now that you've established your niche and you're comfortable in it, you focus on making designs increasingly distinctive. You, at some point, bring out what you know what people like to call brand DNA and things like that. In the process, I know the brand is young, but what are you finding are shapes and styles and colors and things like that that you know you feel really need to need to perpetuate? Because right now you're you're trying to have a lot of different things for a lot of different activities: flying, diving, uh, equestrian stuff. But over time, I, I feel that you start to feel that there's certain what they call visual codes that identify you. And have you been thinking about that at all? From day one, in fact. Um, one of the things that you will see across any Abingdon watch, there's always several features that you're going to find. Uh, one is that you will have a date function and a minimum of three hands uh, for any movement. I'll never make like a minimalist two-hand uh, watch. You will always find uh, super luminova or some type of uh, luminous coating, either on the hands, on the dial, or a mixture of both. Um, you'll always find a sapphire crystal. I know that's not something that you can necessarily identify just by looking at a watch, but that is a characteristic of all 40 of our styles right now. Um, and then you're going to also have um, an inner rotating chapter ring. So that inner rotating chapter ring is, uh, we've had world timers on some of them. We've got compasses on others. We've got the E6B, the flight computer, and uh, we even have uh, a secondary time zone on some of our watches. So you'll always have those things and that will identify. And then of course our band, our steel band is a Chevron link style, which is uh custom. We designed and built that. So it was, it was influence and inspiration from Breitling. There's a couple of their bands where, or their straps where you can see it across the room and you recognize that that's a Breitling just because of the strap that angled, you know? And so yeah. I wanted to do something that was um, identifiable from across the room, but also had meaning to who my crew members were. And the Chevron is in the military. It's definitely in aviation. It's runway markings. Uh, it's definitely in scuba diving. It's on the racetrack. So it means, the Chevron means something to each one of those different types of women. That's cool. And then over time, you sort of you know build upon that and you experiment and things like that. And for, what I'm hearing from you saying is a real dedication to tool watches, right? You want to make sure that these are instruments that have real world utility and not that you have to, but if you wanted to rely on them for more than just telling the time, you could. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's 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 a great part of the story. Now, to get even like more radical things or even new complications, that is, you know, really big research and development, big budgets and things like that. But now that you've done this a little bit, I'm sure you're already starting to imagine if I had the budget for this crazy development, <laughs> I would try this, this, or that. It's probably a functional thing, I'm guessing. But I'd love to hear from you, you know, what some of your, I guess, fantasies are on product development, where that could go. Oh, my gosh. I don't think we have enough time. I've got like an entire <laughs> wish list. Um, <laughs> let's hear some of them. Uh, it's let's cathartic. See. Um, well, I, uh, I definitely want to have something... Um, Oh, I don't know how much I can give away because there is 
Ooh, okay. I definitely <laughs> want to do something with outer space and uh, okay. with uh, the um, telemetry of just how we are timing our destination when we launch, uh, whether it's a satellite, well, not a satellite, but um, like the rover or a ship with people or whatever we're doing. Um, there's a lot of function involved in and tooling involved in trying to hit the planet as it's in its rotation or hit the whatever we're trying to go to, right? So yeah. there's uh, there's definitely like how you have um, tide watches and you've got moon phase watches and things like that. I would like to develop something more oriented. Like towards... an orbital trajectory yeah, application? Yeah, very similar. Mm -hmm. okay. um, that's a personal wish list just because I do want to go to space. Um, and, uh, and then here back down on Earth, um, I want to get more accurate with uh, dive water resistance and um, and some of the movements that are automatic movements that are, are really good. There's still plus or minus so many seconds. And when you're diving, it really doesn't matter that much if it's just seconds because what you're really more concerned about is minutes when it comes to sure. the air in your tank. Um, but I would love to see uh, some better water resistance, uh, you know, just putting gaskets and making a case thicker to to get a better water resistance should not be the only answer. Um, pressure means you need flexibility. And I would love to see cases that weren't made out of steel or titanium and have something that was more flexible to be able to withstand the pressure difference between inside the case and outside the case in the water. Um, so there's some things like that as well. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, gosh. That could be a good, a good niche. I mean, look, People have been approaching water resistance from a lot of angles for, you know, over 100 years now. Mm. So it's, it's, it's one of those wonderful things because, as you said, there's multiple ways of achieving it. And everyone understands uh, water resistance. That's what I like about it as a complication. You ask a regular person out there, water resistance, they more or less understand, oh, water shouldn't get into it. Mm -hmm. But coming to it with a different story, even if it's redundant, even if someone else has a different technology, which is just as good, having a different functional story to uh, alleviate this problem, I think is captivating enough in itself. So if you were able to find that particular material that would work as well as, as metal, that would be a great story for people. I mean, we know that um, ceramic, of course, doesn't work because it doesn't have that, that ability to move right. uh, and flex. Metal does a little bit. Um, and we know that extreme depths, if it has too much give, then that's, that's a liability as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's very interesting because, you know, there's, there's, there's two elements, and you know this to, to dive watches. One is the theoretical maximum it can take, right? I, I, I don't know about for women and guys, really get excited about, it's like a car. I want it to go faster than I'll ever be able to go. I just need right. that, right? right? And so I imagine with dive watches, it's maybe kind of the same for women. But then at the same time, you want to have um, that practical day-to-day -day wearing comfort. And again, as someone who, for me, dive watches are my favorite, and I have a lot of them. I have absolutely loved all the different experimentation that I've seen over the years, different types of dials and bezels and, and all these systems. I have gasketless ones or ones that have, you know, triple the gaskets and all that stuff. Yeah. It, is, it is such a wonderful... So I, I support that idea. Not, it's not easy because at the end of the day, you want to have a product that even if it's different, is at least as good as the other ones, right? Sure, sure. And it's it's funny because, um, you know, I I come from aviation, right? So I used to build uh, Lancer airplanes. It's an experimental race plane. And um, we would stick the radar in the tail, which was made of fiberglass, while the rest of the body was made of carbon fiber. And the reason being is because you can uh, receive and transmit through fiberglass, but you cannot through carbon fiber. Really? So, you can't through carbon fiber? Yeah, not, not well, as well, not? not with as much accuracy. Metal I know, of course, but why, right? why not carbon fiber? I guess uh, it absorbs the signal? It absorbs the signal. Carbon, I mean, glass, fiberglass is shreds of glass, right? So you yeah. can, you can get anything through glass. Um, carbon fiber is a lot more difficult. And, oh, that's interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, I, I love seeing the carbon fiber cases and different elements on watches that are made of carbon fiber. And I'm wondering, like, well, why not use fiberglass? Like, we could do a lot more if we started using fiberglass, you know? So, um, there's some, uh, there's definitely a lot of 
things there's that I take from there. There, there, there are yeah. there are glass fiber cased watches mm-hmm. before. Um, I've seen them do it so that you can have colors. For example, if you want to have a white case, carbon isn't going to get you there. Correct. And ceramic is going to be expensive and mm-hmm. different. But glass fiber um, cases, I, I've seen them machined down. I wouldn't call them luxury material, but they are, they're, they're cool and it is available. Yep. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by Brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. So that that's that's so this is this is fun. And you experiment, and you make prototypes, and you see how it goes. And one of the amazing things in this space, which I think it's kind of to your benefit is unlike some other industries, let's say you're making like computer, um, you know, graphics cards, like you can't come out with something old. You always have to come out with something new or else no one's going to get it. In the watch space, consumers are willing to rediscover things, Mm -hmm. right? Or to enjoy it in a slightly different way. And that's what's great because you can come out with something that may be a material or technology that someone else has, but if you formulate it slightly differently, then there's going to be a market for that, even though they offer it. And that's kind of cool, right? Totally. Yeah, we're working right now on something for the uh, emergency medical field and first responder field. And um, just the pulsometer that one would have on a watch. There's a different way to look at it and make it more relatable to to even somebody who isn't necessarily in the medical field. So um, we're having a lot of fun with that right now. That sounds exciting. So I want to hear a little bit more about speaking to some of the consumers and things like that. I mean, I've been going to watch events for a long time, and it is it is relatively male dominated. Um, I would say that there are there are women that go, but I think that it's 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 clear that there's sort of an untapped need there. What what is some of the sentiment? I mean, I, I guess every every woman, of course, is going to be different. But when you speak and spoken to women who identify as a watch lover. Talk a little bit about some of their sentiments from going to events and things like that. Because I wouldn't say that it's it's not welcoming of women, but it's not it's not it's it, it is obviously a very male focused thing much of the time. So what's some of the feedback that you've received? So most of now keep in mind I, I've only been to two watch events in sixteen years. So oh. I I don't typically go to watch events. Uh, we would go to air shows and dive shows and outdoor shows and motorcycle shows and things like that. I'm, I'm going to be going to Sturgis in a few weeks to teach watch repair at a skilled trades booth. Like, okay. that's, that's kind of where we are because that's where our customer is. Um, so you're taking a totally parallel road. You're in the industry, but you've recognized that trying to compete at all the already crowded places doesn't really do you a lot of good. Yeah, I, I was really... Uh, the first watch event that I went to was the wind-up fair in New York last year. And um, and the worn and wound crowd, which is a great, a great group of people, they more or less kind of had to convince me that there was a space there for me. And I was like, I don't know about that. I don't think it's going to be very welcoming to what I'm doing. And they're like, just try it. And I did. And it was surprisingly, incredibly welcoming. And um, much like the other industries that we go to where women are a minority, aviation, diving, motorcycling, all those types types of things, um, it still is, it's a positive experience, experience from those men that are there because they want to encourage their daughters to come or their wives to come or their girlfriends to come and support them in their passion. So when they see somebody that's there that is 
for that woman in their life or that young girl in their life, then it makes them happy. So it's, uh, I mean, at, at the last watch event that we were at, I, I know a lot of men would come up to our booth, would take a look at it and say, do you have any straps that the holes go up more? Because my wife has super tiny wrists. I'm like, oh, we make all of our straps that way. And they're like, oh my gosh, okay, I'll get that and I'll put that on our watch. And then it's like, can I take a photo of this and, and send it to her? I want to like see if this is something I can bring back to her. I mean, those, those were the, the, the well welcoming, positive experiences of being there. So I anticipate going to a lot more watch events um, and just kind of becoming as successful there as we have been in these outdoors and adventure events where women are kind of saying the same thing. I think you'll find that the one predominant feature I find across, uh, in watch lovers around the world is a really open-minded curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I love this because watches have been this tying factor. Like I've traveled to places that that have no cultural similarity to where I grew up here in Los Angeles. And what I've found is that because you share this interest in watches, that transcends a lot of cultural barriers. And I, I found that you can, you know, you can have these 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 deep connections and things like that. And I think that's interesting that watches, you know, they pull people together. Um, in, in a way, and when you go to these events, you can see this genuine curiosity. Mm-hmm. Who's coming to this space? What are they offering that's new? I think one of the major questions out there is they have, you know, people who make watches have these diverse backgrounds. And there's an interesting question. like, why did they f- t- decide to focus, maybe not all their time, but a lot of their time on watches? And it's an interesting thing that it's, it is sort of a, a business choice these days that you can do. And what I'd like to hear now is talk about some of your experiences of actually getting watches built. Of course, it's always very, very difficult to begin with, but then with suppliers and wanting to make sure that you have good prices and delivery times, the, the challenge sort of never never stops. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts just as an entrepreneur on making watches and continually making watches. Sure. Can I tell you a quick story, though, about how watches connect people that you, you triggered like one of my favorite Please. memories? So there's it's a, one of the reviews on our website, and um, don't ask me where it is. There's a hun- hundreds of reviews, but this woman tells this story about how she went to go and apply for a flight, a pilot job at Delta. And whenever you do an airline uh, interview job um, for a pilot job, it's typically a group with a pull away for an individual interview. So you're in a group of like 50 people for the day, and they have all these group exercises, and people are are observing you. And then you get pulled away one at a time to go do like the one-on-one interview with a chief pilot or the HR manager, whoever it is. So, but you spend all day with this group and one of their chief pilots or one of their captains will kind of be monitoring the whole group. And, um, in at this interview, this woman was there to interview for her first officer position. She's sitting up in the front row. She's like the only woman in the room and the chief pilot that walks in is also a female. And she starts talking to the entire room of 50 candidates about what the day is going to be like, when they're going to break for lunch, how things are going to happen, who's going to get called it, whatever, and just goes through the whole, you know, opening statement. And in the middle of her opening statement, she stops and says, are you wearing an Abingdon watch? And look and points at my customer um, in the front row. And she's like, I, I am. And then the chief pilot holds up her, her wrist and says, I've got the same one. And like, the, wow. it was like, oh my God. And she got the job and she credits, <laughs> she credits, she said, I think it was a really good icebreaker. I think your watch this helped me get a job at Delta. Isn't it? Oh my gosh, it was so <laughs> valuable. Um, yeah, the, the testimonials uh, are, are stories in themselves. Like the reviews on our website, uh, the woman that has survived a helicopter crash, her and her watch, she woke up in the hospital and she's a navigator for the air force and um yeah i mean it's it, the woman who like dropped hers in her uh, at a music festival found it at the bottom of an ice cooler uh four days later and it was still ticking i mean it's like it it's 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 really unique it's fun to read those reviews um so anyway no thank sorry, you for but, the, that, that that was a good story <laughs> uh going back to uh supply and, and Buildings, hopefully less emotional tale. (laughs) No, no, it's definitely less emotional. Um, So the way I did it, and I I did put a a really, it's one of our most popular videos, how to start a microbrand. And it's on our YouTube channel. It's probably the one that gets um, uh, 
viewed and questioned all the time more than our others. Um, you basically, the way we did it is uh, I looked at Google. I um, just started, I found Alibaba, which a lot of people think it's only Chinese manufacturers and it's not. Um, so I started searching watch manufacturers in Switzerland, Japan, United States. I was really hopeful, but there wasn't much. Um, no. And uh, and I started getting connected with different manufacturers around the world. Because again, I'm 22, just got out of college, started doing my private pilot training, I have no knowledge of anybody in the industry or how the watch industry rolls. So I just like what you would do when you're courting somebody or you're looking at doing a business relationship with them, you get references, you, uh, you know, you meet the parents, you meet their friends, you meet other people that um, do business with them or know them that can vouch for them. So I I checked the Better Business Bureaus for the countries for these businesses. I saw how many years they'd been in business. I asked them for referrals. Who have you made watches for um, that I can talk to that would tell me what it's like to work with you? So I don't know if that's what everybody does, but it kind of made sense to me to do it that way because I'm about to wire tens of thousands of dollars to another country. And hopefully in six months, I'm going to get a batch of watches. Like It's like, I have no idea how this is going to work. <laughs> so, and, um, and I, I definitely was, uh, I don't know if it was being taken advantage of or just ignorance, like what I know now, um, for example, watch packaging the boxes, uh, they typically a minimum order of watch boxes are sometimes like two to 5,000 pieces. And, yep. um, and that may be okay for somebody who's established in the industry, but when you're just starting, you don't even know if you're going to sell a hundred in the first year. So, um, I did, I had a 3000 piece box order. Um, and when I first started the company. And I think it took me like six or seven years to get through those damn boxes. And I was just giving them away like candy. It was a freebie at an air show. And um, and now when I talk to a supplier, it's more of, hey, I want to establish a long-term relationship with you, but I do not want my first order to be in the thousands. Instead, I'd rather have a minimum order of a hundred or something small because I want to know what your communication's like. I want to know what your quality is like. I want to know how the delivery time is. And I want to know what our what our long term like, what the how these last over long term. So, um, if I had had that conversation at the beginning with some of the box manufacturers I started working with, oh man, it would have been a, a way better game. But uh, but those are just things that you start to learn and you get better at as time goes on. It's thank you for sharing that. I mean, I've had, especially off the record at this point, hundreds of conversations with people and they're experiences getting brands started. And I've heard probably every story available <laughs> related to suppliers. I think what's interesting to me is that on the one hand, you've pointed out a lot of ways where it's not that friendly. But the other time, people need to remember, it is possible. you can't. There, there aren't these resources if you want to go make a car or a refrigerator. Mm -hmm. But if you want to make a watch brand, there are companies out there that if you know how to speak to them and you know how to sort of like set the right boundaries, can do pretty much everything for you from mm -hmm. making the watch to the packaging, uh, you know, of course, assembling it and, and making all the different parts and things like that. And that is a very special opportunity. I don't think it's going to be there forever. I still refer to this as part of sort of golden age and in independent watches because of that industrial um, capacity to be out there. And my belief is that the companies they're sort of in will retain those relationships. But five years from now, the ability for a new person to go out and solicit the services of a supplier to get entire watches made, I, I just think economically speaking, those opportunities are going to start to go away. Yeah. And it's great if you're in now, but I really believe that in five to 10 years from now, the ability to just sort of go out there and shop online as you have to find these connections is going to be much more diminished. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, the, I still work with the same manufacturer I started with on day one. And not to say that I haven't tried other suppliers or other manufacturers throughout the years, but when you find somebody who's good, then you're going to stick with them because it's especially in this post-COVID time, factories are shutting down, watch sales are down, parts, nobody can get them made, the supply chain situation. I mean, it's, it's just a one headbutt after another, you know? So it's... 
something that I don't think is going to last forever, forever either. And it's hopefully just going to kind of windle it down to those that are really good at what they do. So that's the quality is always going to be the most important. Can you understand how a lot of companies end up making all or at least some of their components themselves? Like, can you understand this drive? Obviously, from a <laughs> from a, a risk perspective, this increases it through the roof because now you have facilities and machines and trained people. But at this point in the brand, I'm sure you can understand how nice it would be if you could control these things, right? Uh, I would love to be you know, manufacturing my own cases here in Vegas to start doing the dials and the hands all myself because I can't, if I come out with a new watch, um, then we've had a couple styles that we just didn't realize were going to blow out of the water like they did. And um, when I'm limited to 500 pieces of an MOQ for a certain style, a case or something, and it was this all IP black or this beautiful brown and green combination that we had on uh, one of our watches. They, they just sold out so much faster than expected. And yet I can't go and just put another order in immediately for another 500 of that one color because I still have six other colors that I'm dealing with. So to be able to just do short runs of the popular styles that I was not anticipating would do so well, I would love that ability. And then at that point, then we can really start playing with different things when you can, you can experiment more, you know, you can, you, you can only experiment so much on a, a CAD drawing or on a rendering of what you think a watch is going to look like. And yeah, you can 3D print it now and that can help, but it's still not that consumer experience. You're still not putting it in front of a hundred people and saying, okay, how do they, how do they use it? How, what do they say about it? What do they like about it? If you could do a small run in house, then that becomes really easy to do. I want to talk about the difference in terms of product appeal and brand appeal, because I think that it's very central to Abingdon as a company. And what I mean by that is that there is an attraction to what you do because of uh, a like in the visual of the product. Like, oh, that's a pretty watch. I would like to figure out who makes that and, and see if it's something I want to wear. Or alternatively, they are first compelled by the brand. Either it's something that you do or some place that you are, but there's something about the brand you know, not specifically related to what you make that, that attracts them. And then because they want to be part of that, they then sort of be like, okay, amongst the, the watches, this is the one that, that matches me the most. But the primary interest is, is, is in the brand. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've identified both types of behavior. There's some consumers that want the product and others that want to, quote unquote, wear the brand. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the experience of selling essentially two different things at the same time. A, a brand experience and B, a product experience. So I think our product um, is, is an excellent product. It's, nothing is uh, second tier. Like it's all top tier stuff. The sapphire crystals, the all metal movements, Japanese and Swiss and American movements. Uh, everything is really, really high quality, which doesn't often, you don't find that very often in a women's brand. It's a lot of times mineral gr uh, glass and it's, and it's not maybe this, best water resistance and things like that. So the fact that the product is backing up the experience that is getting all of my customers to talk about the brand is really the the secret sauce. Because when you're first starting off and starting your own brand, I didn't I started this in 2006 is when I had the idea and 07 is when I launched the company. Well, in 08, the entire world imploded economically and I couldn't even afford a printer. So it was like, okay, I guess I got to email receipts now, but that wasn't really the thing to do back in 08. That was, that kind of came a little bit later. Now we all get all of our receipts emailed, but I had to do those types of things too, because I just didn't have the budget and nobody had money to go spend on a luxury item. So I needed to make it so that my customers started selling the brand for me and started talking about it. So instead of calling them customers, you're a member of the crew when you wear an Abingdon watch. So now crew members were seeing each other at airports and like, just like Porsche drivers, right? They're given the high, the hello wave and like a wink. And, and that still happens today. Oh, you're wearing an Abingdon watch. I mean, just like that story I told you, right? And then you have, uh, these other things that we've started to do, um, events. 
uh, we had three crew members hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. I was one of them. I almost got helicopter. Well, I did get helicopter evacuated. I almost died. We're doing a, uh, we did in New York when we relaunched the brand with a new logo and a new look. We had, uh, people flying in from all over the country to our secret loft party. And everybody, all over the media was there, you know, Bloomberg and Vogue and everybody. And then you also had, uh, some of my crew members who flew in from Oklahoma. One woman, Brandy Rector, she runs a helicopter hog hunting operation out there. And, um, whenever anybody goes off to Hawaii and we see that because we follow all our crew members on social media. We connect them with Nicole Batches, who wears one of our uh, watches, and she runs rainbow helicopter tours out of out of Honolulu. So when you become a crew member, you are like in this club of these really adventurous, cool women. I mean, Girls at Scuba, one of the biggest, probably the biggest dive organization for women online, uh, they wear our watches. We're a partner with them and they do dive trips and we send people to those dive trips. Um, we're doing a huge uh, racing event here in Vegas in November. Um, and it's it's crew member, crew members got the access to it first. Uh, so we've already been inviting them and then we release it to the public if there's still space left. So that, that type of, uh, I guess brand, um, proposition, that value proposition that the brand offers is a major reason why people want to wear one of these watches. It's interesting, and I'm really glad that you used the word club a few times because I've identified this as being very powerful. And the idea is that you're creating community and people feel that there's a group of people that's for them, ideally by other people like them. And when a brand is able to use modern communication channels, email, social media, the website, whatnot, to regularly reach out and connect to these people, you are offering them value above and beyond, here's a tool you can wear on your wrist. The tool on your wrist is, of course, functional and nice, but is essentially a designator of club participation or community involvement. Yeah. And a lot of people out there are looking for communities for people like them. And I, and I, I know from firsthand experience, because I've seen it, you know, clubs, so to say, for active women are rare, right? They're very, so rare. very rare. A lot of it is sort of, uh, I don't know, you know, fashion-y or maybe related to food, but just mm-hmm. women that are active, there's just not that much out there, right? No. Not at all. And it is, um, it's, it's your membership card. You know, when you wear your watch, you, you're, that's how you get into these events. So yeah, I mean, we host a, uh, for the women in aviation conference, which is held every like February, March, it travels around the country. We always do the kickoff clock tail party. And if you're at the door and you have your watch on, then we just cover your drinks for the whole night. Anybody is welcome to come in. Anybody who's going to the 5,000 person attendee conference can come to the, to the kickoff party. But we've now been doing this for so many years that people know one, it's the best party to go to. And two, oh shoot, I got to wear my watch because I'm going to get all my drinks covered. And it's, it's just, it's become fun. Like even here in Vegas, we had one of our crew members, Stephanie Getz. She just did a big, uh, her singing debut at a speakeasy here in town. And we just did a, an invitation to the local crew members, um, to go buy a few tables and go support her as she, you know, kicked off her becoming a singer. And she's a jet pilot and she's, you know, a big adventurer, a traveler woman as well. And so it's just, uh, you, you are, you, you support each other, even though you don't even know the other person. The fact that we both wear the same watch means that we're probably into the same things. I want to point this out for sort of other people are listening, and this is really, really crucial here because what you what you see is again, people, yes, they're buying a product, but the feeling that the brand is a friend and inviting you to do cool stuff that you might not otherwise do, but you'd be into is so, so important. And I see brands sometimes totally get it, like what you're doing, who recognize that you actually have to be like a friend in their life. And other brands, who don't get it, and they're not the good friends. And the way I try to explain to people is this, I love your feedback. Let's say you have a real world friend, and if that friend calls you, and every single time they call you, they want something or need something, 
you're not going to take their calls that often. Right. But if most of the time they're there to share something with you, invite you to something, or just generally do something which is, quote, you-focused, then on the rare occasions that that friend asks you for something like, buy my thing, support my this, come to my party, you'll often do it. And I think that that, that mixture of give and take mm-hmm. with your friends, i.e., crew members, clients, customers, whatever, is so crucial. Most brands, again, it's like every single time they call, it's like, give me money, give me money, give me money. You know, we have a new watch, buy it, buy it, buy it. But you can't do that because the true branding relationship is brand as buddy, as I call it. Brand's got to be your buddy. And it's got to be a good buddy. Mm -hmm. It's got to be such a good buddy that once in a while, you then give back to your buddy in the form of, I guess, buying a watch every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but I really identify as that being a very viable structure. It has to. I mean, in today's consumer experience, like how we all buy now, you cannot... Here's, here's what I learned when I did door-to-door sales through college. Nobody will care about you until you care about them. That's a good takeaway. Good, succinct takeaway. I didn't know you did door-to-door. I have to ask, what were you selling? I was selling educational materials for kids, like uh, homework helpers, mostly for the parents to help their kids with all the right. new common right. core math and stuff That's like that. That's a tough sell. You got to get into their fear, into their hopes and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I did it for four years. I was actually going to ask what in your past made you not just uh, you know, a, a brand leader, but I guess the sort of event host, right? Because when you go to these events, you have to be a compelling and magnetic personality that people not only want to come to, but in a little sense, almost want to be like a little bit. And where did you develop all that? Because that tends to not come naturally to people. I'm the oldest. Um, I My youngest sister's 14 uh, or 14 years younger than me. Um, so I... The big delta. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely was kind of the alpha kid in the family, uh, just by proxy of being the firstborn. Um, but also born in England and uh, raised in the United States, raised in both places, Mexican mother, British father. So multicultural upbringing, uh, multi, multiple languages. The door-to-door sales job definitely for four years honed my ability to talk to people um, that were very different than me. I mean, I was talking to probably about 80 families a day. Um, so uh, it, I think it's just a, a combination of all of those things that I've just grown up with, right? You watch the movie Slumdog Millionaire and that random kid just completely kills it on the show and it just goes through his whole life of how it prepared him to hit every question right. And I think that is a similar thing that I've done where my whole life has kind of led up to me building a watch company that I never thought I was going to have and and be very successful with. But I've always been comfortable in front of a camera. Um, When I was on Shark Tank, uh, when I was on Discovery Channel's Flying Wild Alaska, um, like it just, that never phased me. I grew up in Burbank. So, you know, I was a SAG member along with playing soccer. Like it was just kind of all all of those things combined. They were all the, the pieces of the puzzle that makes me me, I suppose. Thank you for sharing that. It just goes into the larger argument that I try to make about how a brand entrepreneur in the watch space has to sell themselves as much as they're selling the brand. And if they don't want to sell themselves and they want to you know, hide a little bit, which is okay, not everyone is that extroverted, <laughs> but they need to appoint someone that is, right? Right. When, when a brand is new, the most compelling thing about it most of the time is the people that work there, mm-hmm. right? Ideally, the person starting it, maybe some other people as well. But that is a trend that I have seen. And in, in, in all these new brands that come out, some of them have remarkable designs and extremely original or very, very good values and, and do horribly because there isn't a strong leader who can, who can, who has this public speaking um, skills. And I think that that's so important today to understand that a lot of this, it's the marriage of a product plus a personality. Especially if you're going to name the brand your first name. <laughs> well, that's actually smart because you look in historically speaking, not all, but most brands are the name of a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Omega is like one of the weird exceptions. And it used to be the name of a person. 
But if you just want to ask yourself what types of names that people like, awesome watch company doesn't tend to live for 10 decades, right? right. It's like, you know, Rolex is a little bit different, but it literally was just a random word that they decided sounded good in different languages. You know, that was a little... They're a little bit more studied by it. But for the most part, that's what works, right? Just somebody's name. It's not as common today, though. You know, uh, many of the independent micro brands or smaller brands that are coming up and they, they're they not named. They're not students of history. <laughs> Look, it's normal that an individual doesn't want to be super egotistical. And this is where I think we're going to end, end it because we're, we're already over, over time. But you coming in, and basically saying, buy my watches with my name on it, sounds sort of like an ego trip, right? Because we know that that ultimately you have to be in it for the consumer, right? So it's sort of an interesting mixture of, yes, these watches represent me, but they also represent things in you, not just me. Right. And that's it's always a very hard sort of, uh, of calculus. So I, this is where I want to end. Give some feedback on some of the well, I get, I get, I get, I guess I'll ask this specific question because you can go tell me directions. What's the right amount to get nerdy with people, right? Because you obviously like watches, you like the functionality. When you were speaking earlier about the things that every one of the Abington watches should have right now, you know, inner rotating bezel, these are all functional things. Mm -hmm. But as we know, and this is the exact same with men, you can only get so nerdy before their sort of eyes glaze over and they don't want to hear about it anymore. So yeah. what for you is the right mixture between let me tell you about how these work and how they're made and I'm going to spare you some of the details and we'll just have a lot of smiles and fun. So here's how I do it. And it's also something I learned um, when I was doing door-to-door sales. You always know a good salesperson by who's talking in the conversation. And uh, the person who is talking is not the salesperson. If that's the client, right. then then you have a good salesperson because that person's staying quiet. So what I do is I talk. I ask them first, "What do you do? What brings you here? What are you interested in? How you know?" I get their story, and from there, I can figure out how tech I need to get, how nerdy I need to get with them. Uh, sometimes I don't even go down the functions. I just say, "Oh yeah, we have three different purple watches." Um, purple is your favorite color. <laughs> cool. You know, and sometimes people are like, Oh, well, you know, da, 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 da. and it's like, okay, I can, I can step in on this one. And, um, and when it, when people get super nerdy, um, my staff knows, okay, we need to bring Abingdon in on this one. And, uh, and I'll, I'll step in and help <laughs> out. Um, but a lot of times I, I reel it all the way back. And, uh, and you should, you know, you should never make somebody feel anything less than amazing when you're talking to them about your brand. It's, it's great advice. And it's not something which is followed a lot for, for simple psychological reasons that people who start a brand are very excited by. The thing that makes me laugh all the time, which is sort of the polar opposite of what you're talking about, is what I'll call the hyper-German mentality. And the hyper-German mentality is the product speaks for itself. <laughs> you don't have to do any marketing or sales. You can be a cold jerk, but if the product is beautiful, well-made, the consumer will come. And that's true of amongst a very small amount of consumers if they happen to stumble upon the brand. For the most part, people are horrendously turned off by a cold brand experience, regardless yeah. of how amazing the product is, right? Yeah, absolutely. People buy from you because they like you, they trust you, and then they like the product. It's it's in that order. You know, stories sell, facts tell. And that's that's all people should be <laughs> learning. <laughs> Abington, we're out of time. Just remind everyone the website and where else they can learn about you and the brand on the internet. So definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, Abington Co. Uh, the website, abingdonco.com. All the social channels are at Abington Co. except for Instagram. That's at the Abington Co. Um, and uh, yeah, you can. we are very reachable. If you call the phone number, on, which is listed on every single page of the website, somebody will actually pick up in Las Vegas. Thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Abington Mullen. Abington, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.